Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. If you were to ask most people who the most famous fictional detective of all time is, the first name that would probably come up would likely be Sherlock Holmes. Even people who have never read a Holmes story or seen one of the countless movies or TV shows have likely heard the name. But although Holmes is undoubtedly one of the most famous literary characters of all time, he wasn't the first fictional detective. Although you can find the roots of fictional detective stories all the way back to Shakespeare, most literary historians all point to Edgar Allan Poe as introducing the world to the modern detective story. With this character, see Auguste Dupin. In 1841, Poe published the first story featuring his genius detective in The Murders in the Rue Morgue. In that story, two women are found murdered in a locked room. Alongside their corpses, the killer leaves behind several curious clues, including two bags of gold coins, some tufts of hair, and a bloody straight razor. You can see in The Murders in the Rue Morgue many of the common themes that would later appear in detective stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Agatha Christie, and plenty of others. For example, The Murders in the Rue Morgue is also considered to be the first locked room mystery. It's also the first such story with a fictional, average guy narrator. Similar to Holmes' Dr. Watson, the narrator of The Murders in the Rue Morgue is the brilliant detective's roommate, who stands back and marvels at all of Dupin's remarkable feats of deduction. Dupin would also appear in two later stories, The Mystery of Marie Roget and The Purloined Letter, both of which became the prototypes for pretty much every armchair detective story from then on. All the familiar elements are there. The brilliant detective, an incompetent police force, the relatable narrator, and most importantly, the underlying idea that brilliant detective reasoning is all that's needed to solve any crime. This was something Poe referred to as tales of ratiocination. Something else interesting comes from the fact that Poe took inspiration from real life to craft his fictional detective stories. For example, Poe's second tale featuring C. Auguste Dupin, The Mystery of Marie Roget, was inspired by a very real murder. On July 28, 1841, some men discovered the body of a partially clothed young woman named Mary Rogers floating in the Hudson River. The coroner found bruising on the victim's neck, indicating she had been strangled. He also deduced that the murder had likely been committed by more than one individual. Mary Rogers had once worked in a New York cigar store that was often frequented by several literary notables, including James Fenimore Cooper, Washington Irving, and Poe himself. In fact, you'll often see Mary referred to in true crime lore as the beautiful cigar girl. It's notable to point out that the discovery of Mary's body in 1841 wasn't even the first time anyone had suspected her of falling victim to foul play. Just three years earlier, Rogers disappeared for several days. This was considered big enough news that the New York Sun even published what they described as Mary's suicide note. 
Although after Mary turned up alive and well a few days later, after revealing she had just been visiting a friend, the son was forced to admit they made up the story in order to sell papers. Things were different, though, on July 25, 1841. That was when Mary announced her plans to visit relatives in New Jersey. A big storm hit the area the following day, so when Mary didn't immediately return, Mary's mother assumed the girl had gotten caught by the bad weather. It wasn't until Mary's body was discovered on July 28th that the worst was confirmed. Several suspects were looked at, including some of the roving local street thugs and Roger's fiancé, Daniel Payne. A few newspapers even accused Payne directly of committing the murder, although police were never able to prove he had anything to do with it. Payne did later take his own life by drinking poison on a bench next to the spot where Mary's body was found. Whereas it's certainly possible he was simply despondent over the loss of his love, his suicide note did include the line, To the world here I am on the very spot. May God forgive me for my misspent life which some authorities at the time took as an admission of guilt. Yet another suspect that came forward later on was a local tavern owner who claimed that Mary's death was the result of a botched abortion. The tavern owner told witnesses Mary died during the procedure, and the abortionist gathered a few accomplices to help dispose of the body in the Hudson. Although this theory fails to account for the strangulation marks on Mary's neck, along with several other key details... The coroner had also previously determined that Mary had never been pregnant and that she had, quote, evidently been a person of chastity and correct habits, in other words, a virgin. Edgar Allan Poe later wrote his own fictionalized account of the murder, changing the victim's name to Marie Roger and moving the setting from New York to Paris. In the story, Poe's detective Dupin determines the guilty party to be a naval officer. The story was serialized, and it appears that when the tavern owner came forward with her deathbed confession that Mary Rogers had died as the result of a botched abortion, this caused Poe to change his own ending. Poe's explanation as to Mary's death is a bit vague, although he does appear to imply an abortion may have been involved without actually using the term. In truth, Poe's story is considered to be a rather unsatisfactory follow-up to the murders in the Rue Morgue largely because Poe failed to solve the very real murder he was inspired by. But nonetheless, it's impossible to discount the tremendous influence Poe's early detective stories had on the mystery genre forever after. It might also surprise you to learn one other interesting fact. Not only did Poe draw inspiration for the mystery of Marie Roger from real life, but Poe based his character of C. Auguste Dupin on a real-life detective as well. Back in Paris in the late 18th century, there once lived a rather remarkable individual named Eugène-Francois Vidoc. He was a man who lived by one simple principle. In order to catch a criminal, you had to be able to think like one. In the case of Vidoc, this was made that much easier because he actually was a criminal. That is until he later turned his life of crime to better use and gained a reputation as the father of modern criminology. I'm Nate Hale, and the game is afoot, and this is The Conspirators.
Something to keep in mind before I tell you about Eugene Francois de Vidoc is that a lot of the details of his life come to us from Vidoc's own memoirs, which were almost certainly written by someone else. So going forward, you have to be ready to take at least some of what is thought to be known about the man with a grain of salt. At the same time, Eugene Vidoc remains highly regarded for how he changed the ways in which crimes were investigated. Throughout his law enforcement career, he introduced numerous innovations, including the use of criminal profiling, ballistics, and other early forensic techniques. At the same time, he was never the sort of genius detective like those written by Arthur Conan Doyle or Edgar Allan Poe. Rather, Eugene Vidoc was an extremely methodical crime fighter, and much of his success came from his ability to think like a criminal. Throughout his life, most people simply referred to him as Vidoc. He was born in the French city of Arras in July 1775. His father was a successful baker and businessman who earned enough money to provide his son a good education. Although Vidoc never really took advantage of the opportunities presented to him. Throughout his youth, Vidoc was always getting into trouble. He got into a lot of fights and often spent his nights carousing or looking for ways to make a quick buck. Both he and his older brother Francois were caught stealing from the till at his father's bakery. When Vidoc's father caught on to what his sons were doing, he began locking the till. But the young Vidoc got around this by enlisting the aid of the local blacksmith's son to help him forge a key. When his father discovered this next transgression, he sent him off to serve an apprenticeship in Lille, although Vidoc soon got caught stealing from there as well. This resulted in Vidoc being sent away to prison for the first time. On that first occasion, he only spent two weeks in jail. Vidoc's father hoped this would be enough to scare him straight, but it didn't work. Instead, upon his release, Vidoc decided to go for one big score. He broke into his father's shop, stole 2,000 francs, and ran off to see the world. His plan was to board a ship to America, but he made the mistake of spending the night before his voyage getting drunk with a sailor he met. The stranger took him to a house full of women. They drugged him, and the following morning, Vidoc woke up half-naked on the docks and realized all his money had been stolen. He considered signing up as a deckhand on one of the ships leaving port, but then he met up with a group of performers and decided that sounded like a lot more fun. It wasn't. The group treated him terribly. He was beaten mercilessly and only fed scraps. Vidoc's appearance grew so haggard that they tried forcing him to play the part of a savage island cannibal who feasted on raw flesh. But Vidoc refused to eat the live chickens they offered him on stage. The young Vidoc fled and tried to join up with a group of puppeteers. But that opportunity too proved short-lived when Vidoc got caught hooking up with one of the other performers' wives. From there he returned to Arras and managed to reconcile with his family and even briefly considered straightening out his life by joining the army. It turned out he had a knack for a lot of what the military taught him. In the year 1791, the Republic of France was caught up in a string of battles with several other rulers throughout Europe. Vidoc fought well against the Austrians, and managed to get himself promoted to the rank of corporal. Vidoc was already quite a good swordsman by then, having taken up fencing at an early age. This served him well after he fought in 15 duels during his first six months in the service, killing two men. That's also what earned him the nickname Reckless. But when Vidoc made the mistake of challenging a superior officer to a duel, 
and ended up punching him in the face, he was instead arrested for insubordination. Rather than having to face a court-martial, Vidoc deserted his post. But Vidoc didn't leave the military behind entirely. He and another friend who deserted with him simply signed back up with a different regiment using phony names. When Vidoc's true identity was revealed, he deserted again. Only this time he crossed the border and signed up with the Austrians in a French royalist brigade. He even ended up serving as a privateer aboard a Dutch ship for a while. When Vidoc learned that the French were offering amnesty for deserters, he left Austria and returned to his home country. He picked up his military career where he left off and continued fighting for two more years until he was wounded in the leg, after which he returned home to Arras. But Arras had gone through some changes while Vidoc was away. By the time he returned home, there was a brand new guillotine erected in the town square. It had already gotten a lot of use with local criminals and enemies of the crown. Vidoc found himself briefly in more hot water when he got into an altercation with a member of the local regiment, who denounced him as a royalist. For this, Vidoc was arrested again. But he managed to secure the services of a good lawyer who freed him. It was after this point that Vidoc began a relationship with his lawyer's sister, Marie Anne Louise Chevalier. He was forced to marry the woman when he thought he might have gotten her pregnant, but it turned out Chevalier wasn't pregnant after all. From there, Vidoc spent her dowry and later caught his wife in bed with another man. They separated after that, although she insisted that the son she had six years later was indeed Vidoc's. But the pair never reunited, and they officially divorced in 1805. Vidoc moved to Brussels, where he ended up working as a bodyguard for a local gang of card sharks. But he was soon arrested after it was revealed there were still desertion charges pending against him. He managed to escape, and with the help of his new criminal acquaintances, he was able to obtain some forged identification papers and fled once more. He joined up with a group calling themselves the Rolling Army. This was a literal army of con men who traveled the country pretending to be a regular army division. But it's difficult enough for a single individual to mount a successful con, much less 2,000 men. The real French army was sent in to deal with them, so Vidoc left the Rolling Army behind and fled to Paris. There, he was cheated out of all his money, and afterwards he returned to Lille and began a rocky relationship with a woman named Francine Langer. After Langer cheated on him, Vidoc got into a fight with her lover, which led to his next arrest. It was during this prison stint that Vidoc learned he had a particular talent for earning the trust of the other prisoners, who often confided in him the secret details of their crimes. He made several escape attempts during this time, but was recaptured on each occasion. Francine even helped him escape once, although he made the mistake of cheating on her with an ex-girlfriend. So out of revenge, she stabbed herself and framed him for attempted murder, although she later withdrew those charges. After that close call, Vidoc escaped again and fled to the coast. Once again, he considered sailing to America, but instead he got involved with a gang of smugglers. But the illicit business the gang was in proved to be a little too hot for Vidoc to handle. So he reconciled with Francine and began making plans to flee to Holland with her. But during that time in Lille, Vidoc was recognized and arrested again. Once again, Francine tried to help him escape. Only this time, she was arrested as well. After several more escapes and arrests, Vidoc was recaptured and sentenced to eight years for forgery. In February of 1798, after spending three years in prison... Vidoc escaped yet again. He managed to flee to Holland, but was eventually arrested by the Dutch authorities and traded back to the French. 
For this escape, he had three years added onto his sentence. So he did what he always did, and escaped once again. After this latest escape, Vidak was invited to join a gang of burglars. But Vidak refused, so the gang ratted him out to the police, and he was arrested once again. Only this time, Vidak decided to turn things around. Out of revenge, Vidak wrote to the chief of police in Lyon and offered to inform on the criminal gang. Since two members of that gang were also wanted for multiple murders, the chief in Lyon was more than interested in hearing what Vidak had to say. Vidak offered to spy on the gang and get more information in exchange for leniency for his own crimes. Vidak contrived to get himself arrested again during the gang's big bust so that they wouldn't suspect he turned into a stool pigeon. Based on his services, the police gave Vidak special dispensation to return to Paris. But he almost immediately broke the deal and fled to Arras, where he remained for two more years. But he got into hot water in Arras and moved from there to Versailles, where he would eventually be arrested again. It was during Vidak's time in Versailles that he learned not only was his wife Marie divorcing him, but he'd also been given the death sentence for all his criminal offenses. Vidak filed an appeal, but he decided not to wait around to hear the results. He escaped police once again by jumping out a window to the river below. From there, he returned to Paris where he attempted to lay low and avoid doing anything that might get him arrested again. He saw one of his friends being guillotined, which truly terrified him, since he knew his head could very well be on the next chopping block. But the police managed to arrest Vidak once again. This time, he had no choice but to do their bidding and become a full-time informant. This was a dangerous game for Vidak, since many of the criminals he double-crossed would eagerly murder him if they found out he had informed on them to the police. At the same time, if he didn't do what the police wanted, he knew the guillotine awaited. Vidak worked directly for the Minister of Police, Joseph Fouché. Under Fouché, he proceeded to get information on dozens of his fellow convicts. His first big success was after he was sent to La Force Prison in Paris, and managed to gain the confidence of a prisoner named France Tormel. He got close enough to Tormel that he learned where the man had hidden a large cache of stolen loot, and also was able to provide the police the identities of Tormel's accomplices. Vidak spent 21 months behind bars gathering information before finally being released in 1811. He managed to convince his superiors he could be much more useful on the outside if he were allowed to infiltrate Paris's criminal underworld. The police even helped stage another escape for Vidak in order to maintain his cover. Although the French police had a long history of using informants to solve crimes, Vidak did something unique by organizing them. He persuaded his police superiors to allow him to found a special branch of reformed criminals, known as La Brigade de Surette, or the Security Brigade. This was unique for a number of reasons. Back then, most police departments were confined to their own jurisdictions, but the security brigade was able to operate anywhere in the city. In addition, the French police were also divided into two main groups. The police politique, who were mainly focused on uncovering crimes against the government, and the regular uniformed officers who were tasked with arresting everyday criminals like thieves and murderers. Vidocq's requests that his agents be allowed to wear plain clothes and various disguises in order to better blend in with the criminal gangs was considered revolutionary for the time. Eventually, Vidocq's gang of former crooks would prove so successful that it caught the attention of Napoleon himself, the de facto leader of the French Republic. Napoleon saw the value of a strong police force in maintaining power. He established the Prefecture of Police in 1800, 
and increase the numbers of the gendarmerie. He also encouraged Vidoc's group to go even broader in scope, transforming themselves into La Surette Nationale, with authority over the entire country. By some estimates, La Surette managed to reduce the crime rate by as much as 40%. In 1817, the Surette made 811 arrests, including 341 thieves, 46 forgers, 14 escapees, and 15 assassins. And yet, despite their success, Vidoc and his men were despised by much of the police department. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Vidoc described in his memoirs the tremendous amount of jealousy and anger that many members of the police force felt toward him and his agents. Nonetheless, for years, Vidoc remained a powerful member of the French police, and in 1817 he received a pardon from the king for his past crimes. In 1820, Vidoc married for the second time to a rich widow. He was already a wealthy man in his own right by that point, so this marriage only added to his fortunes. Meanwhile, he continued to thrive in the French police. One of his most notable successes came after he infiltrated a roving gang of criminals known as the Heaters. They were so named because of their tactic of breaking into homes and holding the residents' feet in the fireplace, until they revealed where they kept all their valuables. Vidoc joined one of these gangs of Heaters, and actually participated in three of their break-ins before he led them into a police trap. But within a few short years, Vidoc's good fortune came to a halt. The year 1824 proved to be a particularly difficult one for him. That was the year both his wife and his beloved mother died in short succession. That was also the year King Louis XVIII died and was replaced by Charles X. Although King Louis had been a big fan of the work Vidoc did with the French police, Charles was an ultra-conservative who didn't care for the idea of actual criminals working as police officers. Vidoc's professional career took a downturn after that, and in 1827 he was forced to finally hand in his resignation. The following year, Vidoc published the first of his memoirs, which helped make him famous throughout France. Vidoc was quite wealthy by the time he retired, but he wasn't a particularly good businessman. He tried to set up a paper factory in a village outside Paris with the plan of employing primarily ex-convicts, who often found it difficult to find honest work. But the business proved too costly to maintain, and would eventually drive Vidoc into bankruptcy. Meanwhile, Vidoc's absence was being felt in Paris as the crime rate skyrocketed. Much of the police department's attention was focused back then on quelling dissent against the monarchy. But they failed as the July Revolution of 1830 forced the king from power. Charles was replaced by his more liberal cousin, Louis-Philippe, which opened the door for the new chief of police to invite Vidoc to return as the head of the Surette. But this new opportunity didn't last long. The French press took a much harder line with Vidoc this time around, downplaying his successes and amplifying his failures, and going so far as to accuse him of outright entrapment. When it was revealed how many of his undercover officers continued to commit crimes while the police looked the other way, this undermined many active trials throughout Paris. In November of 1832, Vidoc was forced to resign once again. But this time around, Vidoc decided to do something else productive with his retirement. 
He founded what is widely considered to be the very first private detective agency, the Office of Information for Businesses. They mostly took cases involving debt collection and helping victims of fraud recover their money. Vidak managed a staff of around 40 agents working under him, many of whom had catchy codenames like the Cyclops or the Satyr. For a time, the business was a booming success, and once again, Vidak's fortunes grew. He even released another successful book titled The Thieves, which in part detailed many secrets of the criminal underworld and also acted as an advertisement for his detective agency. But although Vidak's private detective agency proved to be a financial success for him, the actual French police didn't care for the competition one bit. Vidak was taken to court several times for acting outside the law. In 1837, police raided his office over a national security matter. At the time, Vidak had also started a business as a moneylender, and it was revealed that four of his clients were war ministry clerks who were stealing state secrets. Vidak was arrested and charged with corruption of public officials, but when the case went to trial, 350 witnesses turned out to testify that Vidak was innocent, and the charges were eventually dropped. In 1842, Vidak made the mistake of apprehending a man accused of fraud named Champagne. He and several of his agents dragged the man to their office and forced him to sign a confession and agreed to take responsibility for his debts. The French police soon raided Vidak's offices and charged him with false arrest and other crimes. Vidak was sent to the notorious prison, the Conciergerie. By then, Vidak was 67 years old. In the damp conditions, the prison greatly affected his health. Although police refused to move him, and even blocked his wife from visiting until they finally gave in after she kept filing multiple appeals. Vidak remained in prison for several months before his trial in May of 1843. Although ostensibly he was on trial for his conduct during the arrest of Champagne, the authorities took this opportunity to scrutinize every case the detective agency had ever been involved in. Many of these stories made their way into the French press, including a number of scandalous stories in which Vidak's agency was accused of kidnapping several young women and placing them in convents. According to these stories, this was done either at the request of the girl's parents or by their jealous husbands. It's difficult to say how many of these stories were actually true, but soon public opinion began to turn against Vidak, who had previously earned a reputation as a heroic figure. Vidak's lawyers tried to argue that all these other stories were irrelevant since Vidak was only accused of falsely arresting Champagne. But Vidak was still found guilty and sentenced to five years in prison. This conviction was thrown out almost immediately upon appeal, but by then the damage was done. Business dried up for the detective agency, and in 1847, Vidak was forced to close its doors for good. That same year, Vidak's third wife, who was also his cousin, died of cancer. The following year, there was another revolution which led to the establishment of a new French republic. Vidak was hired by the provisional government to help deal with the unrest. He proved instrumental in revealing a plot to bomb the government, but the Second French Republic faltered after an election that December. Vidak himself ran for a government position during that election, but did very poorly. The big winner of that election was Charles Louis Napoleon, the nephew of Napoleon Bonaparte, who would go on to bring the Second Republic to an end. Even though Vidak had worked previously for the man, when he offered his services again to the future ruler, he was flatly turned down. In 1849, Vidak was sent to prison one last time after he was caught impersonating a priest. 
A powerful duke had hired Vidoc to retrieve some compromising letters from a mistress. But Vidoc was caught and arrested, although he was later released without charge. He spent the next eight years primarily in retirement, although he would still take on a few cases every now and then. It was near the end of Vidoc's life that the son of his first wife reappeared, attempting to set himself up to inherit Vidoc's estate. But Vidoc proved he was in prison at the time the man was conceived, which put an end to any hope the man might have of inheriting Vidoc's wealth. Officially, Vidoc never had any children, despite having had three wives and numerous mistresses. He died in April 1857, at the age of 82. But, even in death, Vidoc's legend survives. Several writers drew inspiration from the man's life for their own stories. The French author Balzac based several characters on Vidoc, as did Edgar Allan Poe, as I previously mentioned. Perhaps the most famous literary creations ever based on Vidoc actually come to us from Victor Hugo, when Les Miserables decided to split Vidoc into two characters, the escaped convict, Jean Valjean, and the dogged policeman, Javert. Vidoc was never a master of deduction like Sherlock Holmes or Auguste Dupin, but he was methodical and obsessed with good record-keeping, which also helped revolutionize law enforcement in many ways. Throughout his life, Vidoc always boasted of his remarkable memory. But he knew his agents weren't as gifted as he was, so he became a scrupulous record-keeper, keeping detailed records of criminals that included their physical appearance, prior convictions, distinguishing traits, and modus operandi. This system would later be improved upon by Alphonse Bertillon, who would begin including other distinguishing characteristics including fingerprints to help identify criminals. Vidoc's early work also set the stage for the use of forensics and ballistics to solve crimes. On one occasion, Vidoc met with a known thief named Hotat, whom he noticed appeared extremely tired from the night before and was also wearing muddy boots. So later, Vidoc went back to the police to inquire if any burglaries had occurred the night before. He arrived at the scene of one of these thefts and discovered some boot prints in the mud. He instructed one of his men to take a plaster cast of those prints, which were later matched to Hotat's boots and used to convict him in court. On another occasion, Vidoc arrived at the scene of the murder of the Countess Isabelle d'Arcy. Everyone assumed the Countess's husband had shot her in a jealous rage, but Vidoc wasn't convinced. He had the ball removed from the Countess's body, something that had to be done in secret since it was considered highly irregular at the time. Vidoc was able to prove that the ball was much too large to have come from the Count's dueling pistol and instead was able to match to a pistol owned by the Countess's lover, who later confessed to the crime. It's because of the ways Vidoc influenced modern criminology that his legacy carries on even today. Back in 1990, three forensic experts from Philadelphia began meeting for lunch, and they would often discuss a number of legendary cold cases like the Black Dahlia or Jack the Ripper. They were William Fleischer, a former Philadelphia police officer and FBI agent, Frank Bender, a well-renowned forensic sculptor, and Richard Walter, a respected prison psychologist. The three men began to discuss the possibility that they could pull their respective talents, along with those of many other retired law enforcement agents they knew, to help solve cases that had long since grown cold. Each month, this group gathers in Philadelphia to hear a presentation by an investigator for a case where they have run out of leads. The group members offer their advice and, on some occasions, even travel to the scene of the crime to do further investigating. 
Although this group has never capitalized on having solved any of these crimes, they have still gained a reputation for their invaluable help they are providing in solving several cold cases. They named this group the Vidoc Society, in honor of the very first detective. The group bylaws call for 82 society members, one for each year, of Eugene Vidoc's remarkable life. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Kathleen, Melissa, and Polina. You're all incredible. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron, I'll put a link in the show notes. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's charts and helps spread the good word about the show to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry. We're also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also check out our website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere on the internet, you can find us on social media as well. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or our Facebook page for all our latest updates. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.